Today's reading is taken from Hebrews chapter 7. This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God Most High. He met Abraham, returning from the defeat of the kings, and blessed him, and Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. Then also, king of Salem means king of peace. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Just think how great he was. Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder. Now the law requires the descendants of Levi who, come, who become priests to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their fellow Israelites, even though they also are descended from Abraham. This man, however, did not trace his descent from Levi, yet he collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. And without doubt, the lesser is blessed by the greater. In the one case, the tenth is collected by people who die, but in the other case, by him who is declared to be living. One might even say that Levi, who collects the tenth, pay the tenth through Abraham, because when Melchizedek met Abraham, Levi was still in the body of his ancestor. If perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, and indeed the law given to the people established that priesthood, why was there still need for another priest to come, one in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron? For when the priesthood is changed, the law must be changed also. He of whom these things are said belonged to a different tribe, and no one from that tribe has ever served at the altar. For it is clear that our Lord descended from Judah, and in regard to that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. And what we have said is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears, one who has become a priest not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. For it is declared, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless, for the law made nothing perfect, and a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. Others became priests without any oath, but he became a priest with an oath when God said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantor of a better covenant. Now there have been many of these priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he is a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to serve completely those who come to God through him, because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest truly meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set aside from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints high priests, men in the, all their weakness, but the oath which came after the law appointed the Son, who has been made perfect forever. Thanks, Sarah, very much for reading. Uh, welcome, if you've uh, joined us since the uh, beginning, it's lovely to see you all here. Let's pray together before we come to God's word. 
Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your word to us. And we thank you for your promise that it doesn't uh, go out from you without uh, achieving the purpose for which you sent it. And so we claim that promise today. Please achieve your purpose in our lives today. In Jesus' name. Amen. Now, uh, for those of you who've been here these last few weeks, or perhaps if you're here for the first time, just a reminder, this, we're in the middle uh, of this letter to the Hebrews, and it's written to a group of Jewish Christians who are tempted to go back to their old faith. And the writer's main argument throughout the whole letter is that Jesus Christ is the supreme fulfilment that all the Hebrew scriptures pointed to forward to. So therefore, it would be crazy to go back to their old faith. And we finished last week, end of chapter 6, focusing particularly on Jesus, their great high priest, and the fact that he can take them not just into the sanctuary of the temple, but all the way into heaven itself. He was the supreme fulfilment of all that the high priest of the Old Testament pointed forward to. And chapter 7 tells us more about what it means for Jesus to be this great high priest. And as you will have seen, there's quite a lot of detail in the chapter, and there's not time today to follow every line of argument. But I think the main theme of the chapter is this, that Jesus is this great high priest forever, forever. This priest, this, this phrase, a priest forever, repeats five times just in this chapter alone, and it's come before in the previous chapters too. So we'll look at this theme of the priest forever under two headings. First, the evidence for why Jesus is this high priest forever. And secondly, what difference does that make for us in 21st century Parliament? So, first, the evidence. And the writer argues from the Hebrew Scriptures first. And he does this throughout the letter because, of course, these Scriptures were already an acknowledged authority for these Jewish Christians and he wants to show them from these very Jewish scriptures that they all point forward to Jesus Christ. And so in this case he takes them all the way back to Genesis 14 to this mysterious character called Melchizedek. Yes that's right Melchizedek. He might not be at the top of the baby names list currently. In fact when I checked last week, it was ranked 5,521st in the list of names. But he's an intriguing figure who points forward to Jesus as the great high priest forever. And the writer makes this point in three ways. First, he argues that long before the Levitical priesthood, that's the the priests who served from Moses uh, onwards, who offered sacrifices, etc. Long before that priesthood, there was already another type of priesthood that was designed to last forever. That's the point in verses 1 to 3. He says that the Genesis account makes no mention of Melchizedek's genealogy, his birth or his death. Now, whether it's literally true that this Melchizedek was immortal or not, we don't know. The point is, in him, an eternal priesthood of some sort was already established by God. Second, the writer uh, points to the fact that the priest of Melchizedek was greater than Abraham. So in the Genesis episode, uh, when Abraham has defeated a group of local kings and rescued his nephew Lot, 
Melchizedek suddenly appears and he blesses him. Verse 7, the lesser is blessed by the greater. To bless someone was a sign of your authority over them. Melchizedek was even greater than the great Abraham, the father of the Israelite nation. The third point about Melchizedek's priesthood is that it was also greater than the Levitical <coughs> priesthood. Just think how great Melchizedek was, the writer says in verse 4. Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder. In Genesis 14, Abraham gave Melchizedek a tenth of the plunder that he'd taken from these kings in battle. And later in the history of Israel, the rest of the tribes of Israel gave a tenth of their produce to the Levites, because the Levites were full-time priests. They weren't able to produce their own food. But now the writer argues in verses 9 to 10 that as father of the whole Israelite nation, Abraham was also father of the Levite priests. And here you don't see Abraham receiving this 10% tithe like a Levite priest might, like his <coughs> Levite descendants would. Instead, he actually gives this tithe to Melchizedek. And so therefore Melchizedek is greater than the Levitical priesthood, represented, as it were, by their ancestor Abraham in that moment. Are you keeping up, Gary? Yeah? yeah? Good. Good. Everyone okay? Hanging in there. Good. Let's face it, the style of argumentation is not so familiar to us, but I, th I think the point is simple. This is evidence from the Jewish scriptures that God had already established from very early on a priesthood that was eternal, it was greater than Abraham, and it was greater than the Levites. Verses 17 and 21, let's flick uh, ahead to those. The writer then brings us to his next piece of Old Testament evidence. He quotes from Psalm 110. Now notice that Psalm 110 is still talking about this other priesthood one that is eternal, in the order of Melchizedek. The writer to the Hebrews is saying that this eternal priesthood hasn't disappeared by the time of King David, hundreds of years later than Genesis. In fact, it's still being promised here that King David will somehow be this priest forever. But the thing is, as we all know, King David died. So how can he? be this eternal priest in the order of Melchizedek. Well, that brings us to the, the writer's final piece of evidence. Verse 15, he says, what we are saying is even more clear. If another priest like Melchizedek actually appears, one who has become a priest, not because he's a Levite, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is proof that he is the one who has this eternal priesthood. And Melchizedek was a kind of sign, a type of Christ, pointing forward, as verse 3 uh, says, he resembled the Son of God. And then the promise was repeated to King David in Psalm 110, but the reality comes in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The indestructible one, verse 17, who lives forever, verse 24. 
So, for this eternal priesthood of Jesus Christ, you have the evidence of the Old Testament scriptures, and you have the evidence of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, I don't have time today to set out more details of the evidence for the resurrection of Christ. There's lots to say on, on that, and if you're interested, please come and chat to me afterwards. I'd love to point you to further reading. But just before we move on to our second point, I just want us to notice that this eternal priesthood of Jesus Christ is not just based on nice sort of wishful thinking ideas, but the, but the writer's making his case based on evidence. So if you're an intrigued onlooker on the Christian faith, I wonder if you realise just how central this whole idea is to Christianity, that Christian faith is based on evidence. It's there to be investigated. For example, the Gospel writer John says that he goes to all the effort of writing his Gospel with the evidence of the words and the works of Christ so that his readers might believe in Jesus. And the writer to the Hebrews is basically doing the same here. He's marshalling evidence that his readers might be convinced that Jesus is this high priest forever. Well, let's get on to our second point. If Jesus is this high priest forever, what actual difference does it make to us now, today? And I think a summary answer comes in those amazing verses, verses 24 and 25, if you have a look. That's the great difference he makes. He is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he stands forever interceding for them. Now this Greek word here for interceding also has the sense of pleading the cause of someone or making representation for them like you would in a court of law as an advocate. And we're not so familiar with priests and temples, but we do know about advocates pleading cases in courtrooms. So here's another way of understanding Jesus' work as a high priest. He's like a barrister who represents someone in a legal case before a judge. <coughs> and in a normal court of law, in order to represent you as well as possible before the judge, your barrister needs your case to be as good as possible, doesn't he, he or she? in order for you to be acquitted. They are arguing your case on your behalf. But it's very important we notice that in the ultimate court before God, Jesus isn't acting like that really clever, persuasive uh, lawyer, taking the case of our lives, uh, how we've treated others and God, and spinning as good a story as he can before God the Father. Say, come on, you know, okay, he did a bit bad there, but he did really well there. And let's face it, we all know that would be hopeless. We would never succeed in this case, and if we did, then it would make God unjust. Now, Jesus, our advocate, works in a very different way. He has a case, but it's not our case. It's his case. You see, it's not our life that he's pleading before God the Father. It's his life. Verse 26, look at, look at verse 26. Jesus, our high priest, our advocate, truly meets our need. He has lived this holy, blameless, and pure life. And now he's set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. He lived, in other words, the perfect life that none of us can live. Verse 27, Jesus, our high priest, our advocate, then sacrificed his life for our sins once for all when he died on the cross. 
In other words, he died the death that we should have justly died. So this advocate doesn't just produce a great argument uh, for you before God and plead for God's mercy. No, he, he lived a perfect life for you and he died for you and he pleads actually for God's justice. God has mercy on us, yes, but only because first Jesus as our advocate has received God's justice in our place. So for the one who puts their faith in him right now and forever, Jesus Christ, the high priest, he stands before the Father right now and says, Father, you are a just God. Mark Harris is guilty. But I have lived the life that he could never live for him. And I've died the death that he should have died for him. It would be unjust of you to condemn him because by faith he is in me and I perfectly represent him. It's an infallible case. Amen. And the hymn we will sing at the end, I think, captures this perfectly. In in the middle of verse 2, it says, Because the sinless Saviour died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. That's what it means for this Jesus, the eternal high priest, to intercede for us. And if we come to God through him, he's able to save us completely. Now, if you're already a Christian here today, I wonder if that has really sunk in for you. Or maybe it's something that you've forgotten. Because when you put your faith in Christ, God doesn't just forgive you your past sins and, and then from sort of now onwards expect you to kind of live a good life to try and sort of top, keep topped up to somehow stay in God's favour. Otherwise, what's the point of Jesus, your great high priest, standing forever before the Father as your great representative? When God looks at you now, at you now, he sees the holy, blameless, pure, and beautiful life of Christ. Isn't that amazing? Verse 1 of that same hymn says this, My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while with God he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. So when you hear that self-accusing tongue of guilt, remember that your name is graven on his hands and written on the heart of the great high priest whose name is love. That's the confidence that you can have today as a Christian, day after day and forever. And also from this, if you're a Christian, do you see just how much Jesus Christ loves you? I mean, look at verse 25. He actually lives to do this for you every day. Now, he lives to do this. No wonder, again, the final hymn describes him as this great high priest whose name is love. His very name is love. That's how much God loves you in Christ. Do you need to remember that today, perhaps? And for the person who might say, well, you know, I'm not sure, actually, if I am a Christian or not. This passage also, I think, is quite a helpful diagnostic. 
uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones was minister uh, very near here for many years of uh, the famous Westminster Chapel. And um, I'm told that when uh, he'd been explaining the Christian message to someone, he had a very simple way of diagnosing whether they'd actually understood it or not. He would say to them at the end, are you ready to say that you are a Christian? And if they answered anything along the lines of, well, I'm not sure if I'm good enough to say that I'm a Christian, that would show him that they'd not yet understood the Christian message. Because verse 25 shows us that to be a Christian is not about being good enough. It's about coming to God through Jesus, our perfect and eternal advocate. So stop trying to be your own advocate before God, if that's what you're doing. When people try and represent themselves in court, sometimes it happens in the films, but in reality, it always ends badly. And it's the same when we try and represent ourselves to God. Don't try and be your own advocate. So in conclusion, in Jesus Christ, we have a great high priest who lives forever, pointed to in the Old Testament scriptures, proven in his resurrection. And the difference this makes, I think, is everything. It means he stands forever before God, representing us with his perfect life and his perfect death. It means we can have complete confidence, therefore, in God's forgiveness. And we can know just how much God loves us in Christ. And if we know this, then we can sing these final words that we will do in in just a moment with total confidence. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong, a perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love. Whoever lives and pleads for me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I I pray that today and in the future, uh, all of us here may be able to say and sing those words for ourselves. Amen. Amen.